Father, we come to you now and we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds by your spirit, that you'd make us attentive to your voice, that we would hear you and see you more clearly. And that in seeing you and attending to your voice, that you might change us and continue to mold and shape us to be your faithful and your obedient people in this world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So uh, yesterday, my wife, Alicia, was over at the church with uh, Natalie Wiley and Kellen, and they were doing some clean out in our children's ministry area because we're getting ready for a renovation in that space. And so part of that means you go through and you kind of weed out some old stuff. And uh, one of the items that my, uh, my wife, Alicia, came across was this gem right here. So uh, this is a... Um, uh, it's an Elijah doll, apparently. Now, I just want you to look at that for a second. And can you just imagine uh, that, that mouth that opens up and down, kind of like one of those nutcrackers that cracks the nuts? Could you imagine if as a small child, you were faced with this doll right here? How would that make you feel? It's no wonder so many of our children who go through our ministry wind up in therapy. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But one of the things that Alicia and I did was we took the, the doll home with us and... Um, uh, we, we, we tucked the doll into my oldest daughter, Audrey's bed. So she didn't know it was there. And so we put it under the covers. And then um, at night when she went to bed, you know, she, uh, she saw this thing and she freaked out and was wondering what was happening. And uh, there underneath the covers was this nice little surprise, you know, tucked away. And um, now I, uh, I just wanted to show you that cute little guy. Wasn't he cute? He's just so nice, uh, the little um, Elijah. But, um, you know, one of the things I was illustrating with that is that tucked away in my daughter's bed, so this is the normal kind of everyday bed that she goes to, was a little surprise. And this morning, we are gonna look at an everyday metaphor that Paul draws upon and tucked into that metaphor is I think a surprising claim that he makes for us about the gospel. Now, as we continue on in our letter in the book, or in our, continue on in our series in Paul's letter that he wrote to the church in Colossae, uh, we are studying this book because it gives to us a picture of the supremacy of Christ over all things. So the theme of this letter is Christ's lordship over all. And so here, Paul paints a portrait of Christ being the one through whom all things were created. And Christ is the one through whom all things have been redeemed. And he says that Christ is to be preeminent or to be Lord or to be first place in everything. Or as that old uh, uh, reformed theologian, Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ who is sovereign overall does not look at and declare mine. In other words, Jesus Christ is not simply interested in being Lord of our religious life or Lord of our private interior spiritual lives or Lord of our moral lives. Jesus is Lord over all of life. And so what does it look like to follow Jesus in every sphere of life? What does it look like to live underneath the lordship of Jesus in every square inch of our lives, in our life in the neighborhood or at home or in our, through our vocations or in school or in any realm that we have in life? What does it look like, whether in word or deed, to do all that we do in the name of Jesus, to live all of life underneath the lordship of Jesus? And so Paul in this letter is interested to paint for us this magnificent image of Jesus as Lord over all, the supreme one over all. 
And I believe this is an important letter for us to walk through in this cultural moment because look, we are in an election year and we are in an increasingly polarized, politicized, divided nation. And so this letter reminds us as we see this picture of Jesus as the Lord over all, that Jesus is the one to whom belongs our primary allegiance, our fundamental commitment. Our fundamental allegiance does not belong to the right or to the left. Our primary identity is not as a Democrat or a Republican. Our fundamental allegiance is to Jesus who is Lord over all. And he, and to one day, those on the right and those on the left and all of us who are participating here this morning will give an account of our lives to Jesus because he is Lord over all. And so this book paints this picture of Jesus who is supreme over all. And of course, right now we live in very uncertain times. You know, the coronavirus continues to spike. Uh, there's talk of a second wave in the fall. And I don't know about you, but I feel concerned about that. I'm worried about the economic outlook for not just our nation, but for the global economy. And what's that gonna mean for, for you know, how the world lives and the suffering that's gonna go on because of the economic difficulties and challenges. And there is so much uncertainty about the future. And this book is gonna remind us in the weeks and months ahead that Jesus Christ is the one who holds the future in his hands. And even though the world around us is uncertain, we can build our lives on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ, who is Lord over all. And so this is what this book is intending to show us. But this morning, what I do, I wanna draw to your attention is this little metaphor that Paul tucks in the surprising truth about the gospel. And the metaphor is drawn from something that is very familiar to us. It's drawn from the world of gardening. And so many of you have gardens in your backyard and you have planted them. They're starting to bear fruit. You're getting lots of tomatoes. Uh, a lot of us in California have citrus trees and you've got you know, lemons and oranges and grapefruits growing. And Paul draws upon the metaphor of fruitfulness, this very common everyday metaphor. And he tucks into that a surprising claim about the gospel. And so this morning, I wanna draw your attention to the claim that he makes underneath three headings. Here he's gonna show us, number one, that the gospel is a generative power. Second, it is a global movement. And thirdly, it involves a subversive claim. And so let's look first at the generative power of the gospel. Notice where Paul begins in Colossians chapter one, verse three. So in context here, this is the opening of the letter. He has greeted the church and now he does what almost everybody in the ancient world did when they wrote a letter. They began not simply by launching into business, but by giving thanks for the people who they're writing toward. And Paul gives thanks for this church in verse three. He says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And of this, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since you heard it and understood the grace of God until now. So Paul says, look, I see you. And he notices God's work in the church. He says, God is at work among you through the gospel. The gospel has come into this church through the ministry of their pastor, whose name is Epaphras, who Paul says in verse 
7 is a faithful and beloved servant. Look at what he says. Just as you learned it from Epiphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so Paul says, Epiphras has come. He's told us about all the beauty that is coming out of your life as a community. And this work that we're seeing in your midst, it is coming as a result of the gospel. And notice how he puts it in verse six. This is the very center. The very key to this passage is in verse six. Uh, in fact, notice, um, I wanna show you this a little kind of diagram. Uh, scholars will note that this little uh, passage of Thanksgiving that Paul writes can be analyzed through what's called the chiastic structure. That's where uh, the ends mirror one another and kind of parallel each other. And then in the very center, you find kind of the key. And so for example, in verse three, he says, we always thank God when we pray for you. Then in verse nine, he says, from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And then in verse four, he mentions their love for all the saints. That's mirrored in verse eight, when he mentions their love in the spirit. In verse five, he, he, he mentions how they have heard before the word of truth. And then in verse six, since you heard it in the grace of God in truth. And then at the very center is this claim that he makes about the gospel. And he puts it like this, the gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing. He says, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. And it's interesting because he describes the gospel almost in, in personified language. He says, the gospel has come to you. And that can be translated in, in Greek, the gospel has come and it's made its home among you. The implication is, is that the gospel has come in to your lives and it has remained there. You know, back when I was in high school, my early college years, uh, we had many friends that would come over to our house. My parents were always opening up their house hospitably to all of my friends. And very often those friends would come and they would not leave. And so I had multiple friends come and who wound up, wound up living at our house because our parents opened up their home to them. And Paul is saying that is what this church has done with the gospel. The gospel has come and it's made its home among you. And as it's made its home home among you, the gospel has served as this generative power. It's like a seed that's gone into the soil of your heart and life. And as you have heard it, as you have received it, as you have understood this good news about Jesus and his victory over sin and death through his death and resurrection from the grave, he says, as this message has made its home among you, he says, it has begun to germinate and it's begun to grow and it's begun to produce fruit. And so let's observe this. When the gospel makes its home in a community of people, when it plants itself in a human heart, when it is heard and understood and responded to in faith, the gospel will generate new life. It will bear fruit in your life. There will be signs of life in people's hearts and lives who have received the gospel. But what kind of fruit? should we expect to see in our lives? Notice Paul does not describe a group of people who have become full of ritual and religion or even who have large heads full of theological Bible knowledge. Instead, he describes a community of character who are marked by faith and hope and love. And look how he puts it in verse four. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. 
And of this hope you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And I think what Paul is saying is he's saying, look, when you allow this message to go into your life, when you embrace by faith this good news that the God of Israel, that the creator of all things has acted astoundingly through the death and through the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to rescue a lost and broken world. When that news of God's incarnation among the poor and the needy, when he became one of us, when he bore in himself our sins in his body on the tree, when he took upon himself the lowest of deaths, the slave, death. And then when God overturned the verdict of all the unjust powers of the world in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when that news goes out and you embrace it and you hold on to it and you receive it and you orient your life around this Jesus, it begins to generate new life and new hope in you. It is generative power. And so number one, the first thing I want you to notice is that the gospel is a generative power. When the seed goes in, it begins to produce fruit. But secondly, I want you to see not only that the gospel is a generative power, I want you to see from this text that the gospel is a global movement. It's interesting. Notice what it says back in verse six. He says, this gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world. And it is bearing fruit and growing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. And so Paul says, look, the gospel has not only come to you, it's not only come to you, and then he says it's begun to increase. Anybody here ever have something that you tried to grow in your backyard and you couldn't grow it at all? Uh, we've had many, many experiences like that. But then sometimes you have that experience where you, you, you have something that begins to grow in your backyard and maybe you don't even want it to grow, but that thing just seems to grow and it just spreads and it begins to take over everything kind of around you. That's uh, rosemary and mint in my backyard, you know? But, you know, things grow and spread and Paul is saying, this is what the gospel has begun to do in his own world. So this is in the first century, and Paul here has begun to uh, preach the gospel in line with the other apostles, first in Judea and Samaria. And then they've begun to take it up into Asia Minor and to communities around the Mediterranean. Paul is eventually gonna take it to Grecian islands and up to Rome and Italy. And then eventually the gospel will move down into North Africa and, and into Egypt and then up into Northern Europe. And then eventually it will spread over into the Americas and the gospel will eventually become this large branch, this large uh, vine that grows and spreads. And as it does so it starts to generate and produce fruit. This is what Paul is saying. The gospel has taken root in your life. It's spread among you in Colossae and it's also going out into the world and it's increasing and it's spreading and it's starting to generate new life and bear fruit all over the world. Now, surely in the first century, this was something of an audacious claim. Because here Paul is, I mean, this is just, this is a small community of believers in a small little city called Colossae. And at this point in time, the Christian movement maybe had a few thousand people, which is very insignificant. And yet Paul has this uh, wildly audacious goal that this, and he has this massive vision that's been given to him by Jesus, that the gospel is gonna spread throughout the entire world and begin to generate fruit wherever it goes. 
And maybe in Paul's day, that sounded like a silly idea because it was such an insignificant movement. But in our day, looking back 2,000 years later, we see differently. You know, just think for a moment about the last 2,000 years and the generative power of the gospel and all that it's brought into this world that it has grown and spread and filled, you know, the in communities in Asia Minor and North Africa and then Southern Africa and Asia and Europe and the Americas and Australia. Think of, of all that it's begun to generate. First, consider how it's generated movements and works of mercy and justice. You know, the first schools, the very first hospitals, the very first orphanages that were ever developed in the world for not just the wealthy and the affluent, but actually for the least of these were brought into this world through the church through Christian communities. People like Mother Teresa down in Calcutta, caring for invalid orphans on the streets, taking them in and loving them and caring for them. The gospel generated this fruit in the world. Think about how the gospel generated social movements like the abolitionist movement in the 19th century. Underneath Christian leaders like William Lloyd Garrison and William Wilberforce and Frederick Douglass, and then the gospel, of course, generated in the 20th century, the civil rights movement underneath the leadership of many Christian ministers like Dr. King. And it's not just inspired social movements. It's not just generated social movements. It's also generated a rich catalog of ideas that have been transformative in the world. For example, the idea of the equal dignity of all human beings and of human rights was brought into the world first through Christianity. In his book, A Brief History of Thoughts, uh, French philosopher Luc Ferry, who is not a believer, writes this. He says, quote, with Christianity, the idea of the equal dignity of all human beings makes its first appearance. Christianity was to become the precursor for modern democracy. Though at times hostile to the church, the French Revolution and to some extent, the 1789 Declaration of the Rights of Man owes to Christianity an essential part of its egalitarian message. And it's not just generated works of justice and mercy and movements and ideas, the gospel has generated incredible literary works like St. Augustine's Confessions, the first example we have in human history of the memoir that there's been so many examples of, or, or the, the, the genius short stories of Flannery O'Connor. And it's generated incredible, beautiful works of musical genius, raising from Bach all the way to Aretha Franklin. And it's generated architectural feats of magnificence like Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. And of course, it's generated all kinds of artistic productions from Da Vinci all the way to Van Gogh. And of course, so many of the, the, the most popular stories that we love and we enjoy in our day today you know, was the, the very storyline, kind of the narrative arc of those stories was generated first through the story of Jesus. I mean, think about the blockbuster series of the last, you know, 10 years, the Avengers and the whole Marvel universe. How is it that the Marvel universe is saved? You know, at the very end, Dr. Strange, 
you know, he, he looks and he sees, you know, kind of into the multiverse. There's all these different, you know, uh, possible outcomes. And there's only one of the many, many billions of outcomes that could possibly lead to the salvation of the Marvel universe. There's only one way for the salvation of the Marvel universe. And that one way is through the sacrificial death of Iron Man. He lays down his life up for his friends and thereby defeats the enemy Thanos and all of his dark sinister plans for the universe. There are so many ways in which the gospel has impacted and spread and began to generate new life and ideas in this world, all marked by faith and hope and love. And get this, this has not come into the world in spite of what Christians believe. Now, I recognize that there is a lot of garbage that the church has produced over the last 2,000 years. And, and there is a lot of junk. You know, the church has always been half Christian at best, you know, and the, the institutional church has sometimes been even worse than that. I mean, the surprise though, isn't that the church has produced so much bad in the world. I mean, that's to be expected of any human institution. What is remarkable is that this Jesus movement, as it is spread and grown, has had such a profound and powerful impact on human history. Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan put it like this. He said, regardless of what anyone may think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in human history for the past 20 centuries. If it were possible with some super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing a trace of his name, how much would be left? Not much, says Yurasov Pelikan. And that's because the gospel as it goes out has this generative power. I mean, think about this this radical vision, this radical mystery that the transcendent, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God has descended and has become flesh among us in Jesus to be with humanity and to walk alongside of us and ultimately to bear in his own body our own sin and to take upon the powers of sin and death and darkness and ultimately to defeat them, not through an act of violence, but through an act of radical and generous self-giving love. And for God to overturn the opinions of the religious leaders of the day and the political leaders of the day who were afflicted with jealousy, who were threatened by a fear of loss of power, and therefore they used their oppressive power to destroy him. It was through that act of self-giving love that God ultimately defeats all of the hatred of the world. And it's no wonder there has been so much musical and artistic and architectural and social movements and ideas and, and works of justice and mercy that have come to birth out of this tremendous seed of the gospel. And so the gospel, according to Paul, it is a generative power. It's increasing, it's bearing fruit, and it's a global movement. It's increasing and bearing through all throughout the world over the last 20 centuries. But I want you to see finally that the gospel in this text is a subversive claim. You know, there's two words in verses five and six that were common parlance in Paul's own day. And one of those words was gospel and the other was fruitfulness. But it's interesting because they were not first associated with Jesus. Instead, they were associated with Caesar and the empire of Rome. 
You see, back in the first century, the word gospel was not first and foremost a religious term. You know, for us, it's oftentimes an adjective to describe, you know, a particular kind of music. There's gospel music, you know, or gospel preaching. It, it, it didn't first in the first century describe something religious. Instead, it was often used as a political term, used to describe an announcement, news for the world typically news for the world about what was happening with Caesar. And, and there are inscriptions that we found from the ancient world, from the world of Paul, that will herald something like this, you know, the good news of the ascension of Caesar, Augustus. The good news of the birth of a new Caesar, the good news of Caesar's victory. You see, gospel was always an announcement, a public announcement of what the empire was doing through its great Lord, and it's interesting because there's all this language used to describe the Caesars in the ancient world that came to describe Jesus. Caesar is described as the savior and as the Lord and as the son of God and as the prince of peace. And there was a mythology surrounding Caesar and the Roman empire. And many of you will know the name of this mythology. It was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And the mythology went like this as the great Caesar and the great Roman empire finally has come on the scene to be, you know, kind of the true light to all the nations and all the peoples of the world, they've come to bring peace. And everywhere that Rome went, they tried to spread this myth of peace. In fact, the, the fastest growing religious cult in the ancient world was the cult of Caesar, where Caesar was worshiped as God, the one who would bring peace into people's lives. And so it was believed that when you believe this gospel, you know, peace would result. And you know, one of the images, you know, because, because empires always draw upon statues and monuments and images and, and stories to reinforce a narrative that they want their population to believe, you know, the nation to imbibe. And in the first century, one of the images that was frequently used in, on statues and around the cities was the image of fruitfulness. And it was this idea that through the good news of the power of Caesar and his might, he was now bringing abundance and fruitfulness and goodness to all of the peoples of the world. And in the midst of this culture, Paul comes on to say, scene and he says, no, the real good news for the world is not the gospel of Caesar, but it is the gospel of Jesus. It is not the announcement of the Lord who comes on the scene and who crucifies all of his enemies. It is the Lord who comes on the scene and is crucified on behalf of his enemies. And it's not the Lord and Savior who brings fruitfulness and abundance to the upper percentage people in the empire and to the affluent class and to the citizens and to the imperial court through oppressive power and violence. Instead, it is about the God who through Jesus Christ brings his abundance and goodness and life and vitality and hope and faith and love to all of the peoples and maybe especially the oppressed peoples of the world through his own self-giving love. And do you see what Paul is doing in our text? He is making a subversive claim. He's telling a different history of the cosmos and of reality. The myth, the story of Rome was that it was through their Caesar that all of these good things would eventually flow through the world. But Paul comes on to scene and says, no, the true Lord of the world, the true 
king of the cosmos, the true empire that is broken in to bring ultimate healing and flourishing and fruitfulness to all of the world is not the kingdom of Caesar, it's the kingdom of Jesus. And it's as if Paul is telling this church, this is the true news you need to imbibe, you need to root your lives on, and you need to live out of, because when you do so, it starts to produce real fruit in your life. What kind of fruit? Again, faith, deep trust and security. When you bank your life on something other than simply the political powers and the nation you're a part of and military power and all of that, instead you, you base your life, you ground your life on God's revelation in Jesus Christ. And you orient your life around Jesus and this brings deep security in your life. And it not only brings uh, great faith in Jesus, it's marked by great hope a hope that cannot be extinguished by an economy that fails or by the threat of disease or by the loss of your political party. It is a hope that is sure and secure and eternal because it's a hope that ultimately God's kingdom will be established on earth and his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And on that day, Jesus Christ will return bodily and physically and his love and his peace will flood creation. And it's not only, not only generates this hope and this trust and security and, and this, 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 deep, this deep sense of, of hope because that, that is unshakable, it also generates love because when you experience that Though broken sinner that you are, you are deeply loved. It begins to build in you a, a deep identity and security that you can live out of by giving your life and your resources and your time away for others. And so Paul says, if you want to really live, if you wanna experience genuine fruitfulness in your life, it's not gonna be through the news of Rome, through that good news. It's gonna be through the true and better good news of Jesus Christ. And as we close our time out this morning, I, I just want to challenge you with this. You know, I know that we do not live in first century Rome right now. We don't have a Caesar on the throne. We don't live under a dictatorship. Uh, we're not filled with messages around us that specifically say the good news of our political party. But listen, you and I absorb a lot of news all the time. And we absorb all kinds of promises that are given to us from our political pundits or from the corporate marketers that say, look, if you take our party, if you take our products, if you get these things in your life, you will finally be safe and happy. The good news that you need to believe that's really gonna bring security in your life and hope in your life and deep faithfulness in your life says all those voices around us is when you get the right products and technology and vacations and comforts and your political party has power and your candidate gets elected. And, and when, you, when, when you finally get all of these things, you will be safe and happy. And Paul would say to us, that is a lie. The true gospel that goes into your life is not the one that we are constantly surrounded by in our culture right now. It is the good news of God's deep and abiding love for humanity 
that was on full display in the incarnation and in the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the good news of God's kingdom that has begun small and insignificant and in very humble ways and not brought into the world through military violence and through oppression, but instead through works of sacrificial love and justice and healing and forgiveness and, and purity and love as we go out into the world ultimately hoping and expecting that one day this kingdom that begun in the death and resurrection of Jesus will finally reach its final culmination when Jesus Christ returns. And this is the news that will bring you deep security and great hope, and it will transform you into a person of deep love and compassion and understanding. You know, at this time, I wanna invite our Band up. And as we do so, I, I just want to suggest that it may perhaps be the case that for some of us, and I know this is true for me at times, that over the last couple months, specifically during this crazy, fraught, uncertain times that we've been in, that some of you have been becoming more and more fearful and less secure. You have become more and more angry and less loving. You have become more and more uh, despairing and less hopeful. And some of us right now are being blown about by every wind of teaching and news that comes to us from CNN or Fox or from the corporate marketers that keep telling us this news that if you get your candidate in place and you get your future secured and you get your products, you'll be safe and happy. And those, those messages keep going in and those are what, what you're saturating in. It's what you're living out of. And it's not producing security and hope and love. But here Paul says, look, the real news that will generate that which ultimately leads to your healing and human flourishing is this gospel. And it's when you meet God through this good news and you cultivate this relationship with him and you meditate on these, on these truths and you saturate yourself in his presence and you surround yourself with his people who continue to reinforce and support and, and share the stories of God's work among us to generate new hope and new life in us. It is then that we begin to be transformed and changed and strengthened into new and different kind of people. And so I just want to ask you this question this morning. Can today, can we as a community, can we as a church say that we will be determined to build our lives, to ground our hope, to root our loves, to have our desires shaped by this good news that we have discovered in Jesus Christ? Can we say together that we are determined to build this church and to build our lives and to build our relationships on the love of God that we find in Christ Jesus? Can we unite together around this truth? Can we support each other in this truth? And can we say today, here and now, we will be this kind of people by God's grace and by God's work among us.
This morning, we're gonna close by singing the words of this song, I will build my life upon your love. And let's just use these words to reassert our commitment to build our lives on the love of God we've discovered in the gospel so that out of that good news might flow true fruit that transforms our life and through us can make us agents of his love, bringing sweet fruit to the rest of the world. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now and we would ask that you would open our understanding and our eyes by your spirit to the beauty and to the wonder of your grace that is revealed in the gospel of Jesus. God, would you open our heart and our eyes to the tremendous hope that we have that you have not left this world on its, on its own. You've not left us simply to our political parties or our economic systems or our own ability to control our lives and our children and our spouse. But God, you have acted by your own power and grace in this world. Would you root our hope in you? And would you enable us by your spirit to build this church on your love? Would you enable us to move toward each other with deep love and understanding and compassion toward one another? And would you make us your instruments and agents of your love and of your kingdom in this world? And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.